All right. So thank you for hanging in there with us for kind of those announcements, updates. I, I realize like some of that's kind of like insider church stuff, but I think it's good to know and, and I want to be able to be open and share kind of where we are as we've been through some change and transition. And, and so you're not just wondering like, oh man, what's going on? Like, are they painting the church building or not? What's happening? So um, yeah, it's, gonna, it's getting painted. If you want to see a preview of the real colors, the real colors are done on the west side. So um, yeah, Satan is behind that as well. And here's the deal. Where, Derek, where are you? I saw you. Yes, he's here. Like literally as, we're, as we were planned to have this whole outside done this week, um, there was a problem globally with the manufacturing of the paint, like with the chemicals. I'm, I'm not joking. This is not a joke. Like, so we it's just debacle after debacle. And I think it's just so fitting to where we are in Nehemiah today. So um, yeah, if you got a Bible, let's go Nehemiah 13. Uh, if, if you... I uh, have one of the ones from the church. That's on page 409. And we're finishing today. We're finishing Nehemiah, um, which both is exciting, but I, but I think also it comes with a bit of mixed emotion. And on the one hand, it's exciting because it's exciting to finish something. It's exciting to get all the way through, to, to have this moment of completion. Uh, we've been talking for 16 weeks now in this book, and, and really we, we took a hiatus, a break in there, but for the last seven we've been talking about this idea of rebuilding, uh, kind of rebuilding of the nation of Israel in a sense, rebuilding the, the physical city of Jerusalem, rebuilding its walls, and, and we'll talk a whole lot more about that in a minute, but, but then rebuilding within our own lives. You know, a question that I've been asking us since the beginning is what in my life needs rebuilding? And all of us have areas in our lives that need rebuilding. There's not one person in this room who's like, you know what, I I don't need anything rebuilt in my life. Um, So I I hope that you've kind of been spending some time over the last seven weeks asking and putting yourself before the Lord, Lord, what what needs rebuilding in my life? You know, is, is it a relationship with a spouse, with a kid, with a parent? Is it a relationship with a coworker? Is it rebuilding some of my, my disciplines and my habits? Um, is it literally like rebuilding something physically? Like, man, my spouse has been asking me for years to fix this. Like, maybe there's a season where you ha- kind of want to follow through and, and rebuild. Um, maybe it's... May- yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Maybe it's, it's rebuilding the idea that there should be people in your life saying, hey, have you thought about rebuilding? Right? Other than your spouse, right? It's good to have people come alongside of you um, and, and really do life together and that you give the invitation to to say, hey, Josh, here's an area in your life where, man, you might want to pay attention to. Um, we do that primarily through community groups here. And in the next couple of weeks, there'll be opportunities to, to join in and to plug into that. But we need people in our lives that will help us with rebuilding. Uh, maybe it's rebuilding the very foundation of what you believe to be true about life. A foundation of truth that is so important. We're going to talk about that again a little bit here in a second. And the fall is, is such a good time to talk about rebuilding. Like there's just this natural kind of restart, which is, which is beautiful and weird and false all at the same time. Like there, there's a nice rhythm. Summer ends. It's the last kind of shebang, the last hurrah of summer. And then we get a new rhythm in the fall. So it's, it's a beautiful thing to complete something. But finishing it also comes with this weird tension. And it comes with a tension because while we finish the book of Nehemiah, there's still something in us that goes, eh, it doesn't really feel finished. Like my rebuilding efforts don't really feel like I'm done. 
It doesn't feel like I've arrived. It doesn't feel like, okay, we did it. We completed it. Yes, we're done. Can I, can I get an amen there? Right? Like you, you get to the end of Nehemiah and if you're like me, you're like, uh, okay, and now what? Right? And really um, where we're going today is um, that really speaks deep to the, the condition of humanity. Um, and it, it really speaks to who we are as human beings. That we have this longing for completion, this longing for arrival, this longing to like get to the spot in our life where we can go, okay, we've made it, but we never quite get there. It's, it's actually pretty frustrating. And the gospel speaks to this. Um, the Bible speaks this very clearly as it calls us in 1 Peter 2.11. It says that we are sojourners and we are exiles. So we're not home. This isn't our home. So there's always going to be something in us that goes, yeah, well, well while we were rebuilding, I never really finished. And so I just keep rebuilding and rebuilding and rebuilding. And the, the reality is like we could do a series from here until the moment that we die called Rebuilding. Is that not true? Just this constant stage of rebuilding. And here's where it gets, where I think that that some of the tension lies. We live in a world that's constantly telling us, no, you can arrive. You you can be complete. You can finish. Think about like when you were younger, every story that you were ever told, it has an ending. Right? Like the the classic Disney ending is, and they all lived Happily happily ever after, right? Which is such a lie. Like, there's, there's never a moment where you're like, I'm living happily ever after. Like, that just isn't true. But, but culture promises this. Every single movie that you've ever watched, maybe except for some weird, obscure movies, like, they all follow, every novel you've ever read follows this storyline of, like, introduction to characters, there's crisis, you know, crisis averted, uh, resolution, and completion. They all end happily ever after. But that's just not how life goes. Right? There, there's this promise out there that, like, man, you can, you can arrive in life. Right? Maybe you can, you can work hard and retire early, and, and maybe you can get that adventure van that you've always wanted, and you can go to every single national park in the United States and get that sweet little sticker that says, I've been to everywhere, and then you've arrived. <laughs> right? Or you can get to the spot where it's like, okay, like if I just make it to that white sandy beach on Bali, and I've got just chilling on my 3,000-count Egyptian cotton sheets, and I can drink from, like, you know, hand-squeezed coconut water in glass bottles, then I will finally make it, and life will be good, and all that will be well. But the reality is I've been to Bali, and I did not arrive. Because yesterday I'm in my backyard cleaning up dog poop and cleaning up holes that my new puppy has dug. Like, that's just the reality of life. But, but every kid's storybook doesn't tell you that part of the story, right? And with Clifford the Big Red Dog, it's always like, he saved the school bus full of kids. Yay, the end. We all live happily ever after. But, like, you never get to the end of the story, and it's like, after eating out the entire sausage factory, Clifford the Big Red Dog, like, there's issues. Like, you never get to that. But that's, that's life. But again, the promise that we get, that we're told by culture, is like, you can get there. You can arrive. But man, we never, ever seem to get there. And here's the thing. That's exactly where we are in Nehemiah. Like, if, if you cheated a little bit and read ahead to chapter 13, this is quite possibly one of the most depressing endings to any story you will ever read. You read Nehemiah 13, and you're just going like, you've got to be kidding me. This, this is, th- there's no movie that would go off of this plot. 
You get to Nehemiah 13, and by the end, literally, as we're going to see, Nehemiah is like crying out, God, help me, I've tried. Like, that's, that's literally the last thing that you read from a 1,500-year-long from a story is utter failure, is utter just absolute everything that I tried to do has failed. Lord, please remember me. That's what we're going to get in Nehemiah. So let me give you a little context. I know a lot of you have been here uh, for the past seven weeks as we're looking at this story, the last 16, if you will, for the story of Nehemiah. But let's see how we get to this last piece in Nehemiah. So again, Nehemiah is is the very last 50 years of a 1,500-year-long story. Um, This story is about a nation, a people group, a people group that still exists to this day. You can go there physically. Some of you have been to Israel. You've been to that place. I haven't. Someday I would long to go there. But it's the story of their beginning. And it started with one man, Abraham. And God said, through you, I'm going to build this nation. And so you've got this long history, a long story of, again, 1,500 years of God building into this nation. And it's a nation of constant struggle. It's interesting that, that God would use this nation called Israel, whose very name, literally Israel, means to struggle with God. So throughout their 1,500-year period, there's constantly ebb and flow of people who are loving the Lord, who are following him, who are calling him God, and then the next generation forgets him. And there's just this ebb and flow of like, I'm going to worship you, Lord, and then I'm going to forget you. And it happens generationally, but it also happens within individuals. So you get someone like Elijah who, who's like on cloud nine. He calls to the Lord, Lord, do something incredible. God sends fire down from heaven, literally puts him in a position that he's so bold that he's chasing armies by himself. And then he turns around uh, just moments later and he's scared that God may not protect him. And that's the story of our lives. We get these moments where, yeah, generationally we see people love and follow the Lord and then, man, kids and grandkids turn away. We get these moments where in our lives we feel close to the Lord in our faith and we get these what we call mountaintop experiences where God couldn't be any closer to us. But then, man, we, we go through seasons of doubt and despair and frustration and angst and welcome to Israel, the struggle with God. In this struggle, um, we get to this moment where for 400 years, uh, the nation of Israel basically turns their back on God. They give him the middle finger and they say, we're not following you, forget this. And God is very patient. What's so interesting, and, and God gets kind of a bad rap in the Old Testament. I mean, people look at God all the time and they're like, ah, oh, you seem like some megalomaniac, like just constantly killing people. But if you actually read the Bible, the, the biblical authors are constantly just amazed at God's patience. Like God's patience of how he doesn't just wipe out humanity from the earth. But you've got 400 years, essentially, where this nation turned their back on God. And they said, no, we're not going to follow you. We don't need you. Thanks, but no thanks. We'll whore after other pagan gods. The Bible is very clear about that language. And so for 400 years, they do that. And God eventually says, okay, I'm going I'm to grab your attention. I'm going to bring you back to me. And I'm going to do that through the hands of the Babylonians. And so the Babylonians come in and they destroy um, the the entire nation of Israel. They they destroy the city of Jerusalem. And the people are either killed or they're exiled. They're brought 900 miles away to Babylon. And so that that length is somewhere around, math, 1,350 years. And then the Persians come in and, and basically there's this moment in Ezra and Nehemiah where the people are allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. And so the story that we've been focusing on really starts with Ezra. It, it ends in Nehemiah, but it's the story of rebuilding a culture again, 
a culture and a people that starts with the temple, starts with a way to sacrifice, starts with a way to reunite these, pe- these people with God. And, and then they, they build the city. They build the city out with houses. They build protection around the city with a wall. And that's kind of the, the heart of Nehemiah. So they're building it all. And as they're doing this, they're constantly um, reforming and renewing and rebuilding what it is that they believe and what they know to be true about God. And so as we kind of walk through this book of Nehemiah, there are six very distinct moments where um, people are gathering. There's a corporate reading of rediscovering the Bible. And so imagine literally tens of thousands of people gathering. They find scripture and they're reading it out loud. And it's like this very exciting moment. They're going, oh man, this is, this is who God is. This is who our people it's all about. And as they were reading it, they'd read spots where, it's, where God would tell them to do something. And they're going, oh, we're not doing that. Let's stop. Let's reform our ways. Let's set up new systems. Let's set up new flow charts. Let's put people in place. Let's put people in positions of power to make sure that we're doing the things that God has asked us to do. And they reestablish what it is they believe to be true about who God is and who we are. Which, as I said a couple weeks ago, is so important. Truth is so important. And it's important if you're trying to build a culture. If, if you don't have an agreement on the fundamental things that we believe to be true about how a culture flourishes, you've got massive problems. Because you've got one group of people that says, in order to flourish, you need to do this. And you may have another group of people that says, to do that is actually hateful. It's a hate crime. And we should punish you and we should stop you. And so to create a culture that works, you need an agreed upon foundation of what is true. And that's what the book of Nehemiah is about. You get six moments of reform, six different distinct pieces where Nehemiah and the people are reading the word and they say, okay, this we need to change. I'm going to summarize these six things real quick. They they do reforms on how the nation did family. They do reforms on how the nation practiced Sabbath. They did reforms on how everyone gave financially to support the physical temple. They did reforms on how people um, physically contributed to rebuilding the, the actual temple with their hands and their time. They did reforms on how to make it a priority so that people would train their children in the ways of the Lord. And they did reforms on a regular monthly tithe to support those who worked in the temple. This was a nationwide revival. It was huge. And, and, and all of this came with a lot of pop and circumstance. Like last week, we were all excited because, you know, we talked about very briefly because we were pressed for time. But we talked about like this huge party and you've got choirs and choruses and bands and everyone's so excited because we've got reform. We're, we're doing what we need to do to be obedient to the word of God. And then we get to chapter 13. And at this point, kind of like uh, Alex was mentioning Um, most historians believe that Nehemiah left for anywhere between 5 and 12 years. So he went back to Babylon, and he's gone. Uh, Nehemiah is the guy kind of leading all the charge, and when he gets back, five of the six reforms are destroyed in one chapter. Five of the six. So while this nation's being rebuilt... Five of the six, Nehemiah comes back to, and they completely relapse in everything that they said that they were going to do. And we're going to walk through and see what happens. Um, I'm not going to have a stand as we read the word, because I'm going to read it in sections, and it would feel like a burn boot camp, as we're just like up and down, up and down, and up and down. But um, we'll start in Nehemiah chapter 13. I'm going to start in verse 4. This is what Nehemiah comes back to. 
It says, now before this, Elishabib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Elijah did have done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. To remember who Tobiah was, you have to go back to chapter 4. Uh, Tobiah was an enemy of Israel. He was trying to physically destroy um, the work that they had spent rebuilding the wall. He was a terrorist to the nation of Israel. And so Nehemiah leaves. He's gone to Babylon and he comes back. And now Tobiah has a penthouse suite in the temple of the Lord. I mean, imagine that. I mean, Nehemiah loses his mind. Uh, imagine, like, imagine that you have, that, you, that you're a, a mom or dad, and you've got a high school daughter who's maybe a junior and senior, and she has a horrible boyfriend. Right? This boyfriend is physically abusive, he's mentally abusive, to the point where there's like arrests and, and just a, a horrible situation. And eventually, at the end of your senior year, they break up, and you are so thankful. Praise God, this heinous human being is not in my daughter's life anymore. Well, imagine a few months later, you go to university, and you go to the house that your daughter lives in, and it's a house that you own and that you're renting out to her and her friends, and who lives in this house but her old ex-boyfriend? Like, imagine how frustrated, how angry you would be. I'll tell you what I would do. I'd go back to verse 8, and I was very angry. (laughs) And I threw all the household furniture of heinous ex-boyfriend out of the chamber, and I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. But it's worse than that, right? Because you're angry at Tobiah, but you're also just devastated that your daughter would let this guy come back into her life. Right? Like, you're devastated that the priest would bring Tobiah into the house of the Lord, someone who is adamantly against the people of God. Nehemiah is so discouraged. Continue on in verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Selmiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable." And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So here's Nehemiah. He's going back and he's going like, guys, we made these reforms. Like you're supposed to to give to the house of God so that people can do the work, so that truth can be shared, so that there can be a place of worship. And I come back 
And your attitude is like, no, this paycheck's mine. Like, I earned this with my hand. It's all mine. My life is not a gift from the Lord. It's actually something that I did. I merited. I earned it. I deserve it. And I'm not going to give. And Nehemiah's just going like, what are you guys doing? And he's got to rebuild again. He's got to put in new people to reestablish a system to create a place where the church can be supported. And again, he's devastated, and he's having to rebuild again and again. You get to verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to people in Judah, in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? He's going, guys, what are you doing? Like we established Sabbath is so important. We established that once a week, that one day, and this was foundational. This is literally in the Ten Commandments. This is like, you shall remember the Sabbath. Take one day. Take one day off of work. Don't do any work. And it's not for God. It's for you. And here's the reason. It puts us into a frame of mind that says, God, you are the one who's in control. I I can work all I want, but Lord, what really brings progress is you. You're the one who sustains me. You're the one who guides me. And they have this whole reform of Sabbath, and the people completely forget. And they completely go back to working on the Sabbath. And again, here's Nehemiah. He's got to rebuild. He's got to rebuild. We see this as we continue in verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, he commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And that's not like prayer hands. That's like, I'll kill you. Um, From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. And here's this, this cry again. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. He's like, God, we're forgetting you. We've got to rebuild again. We've got to rebuild again. We've got to rebuild again. And then it gets more aggressive in verse 23. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made, I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not, King, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? You get to a section like this, and you probably have a few questions in your mind, like, man, is God a racist? 
Like here, God's like building this nation of Israel. He's got a culture. He's got a people. He's got a language. And and is God really exclusive to the other peoples around him? Like that, that doesn't sit well with like equality. Like that doesn't seem right. What's this about? Well, it's not about race. It really has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with righteousness and worship. Um, you could go to many places in the Bible where, where um, someone of another race is being brought into um, the nation of Israel. Look at the very line of Jesus himself, uh, including an entire book, the book of Ruth, where a Moabite, someone who is one of these very people that was listed, is the very lineage of Jesus himself. And so it's not about the race, it's about the worship. Because what came with intermarrying was an adoption of their language and an adoption of their worship. And so, you know, it's easy for us to sit back and go like, ah, that seems kind of narrow-minded of God. But when the reality is when you dig a little bit further and you realize what was brought on with these intermarriages, you would see, you know, God's actually doing something that's very good and very right. See, because what came along with these um, foreign countries was foreign worship, primarily to the God of Molech. You look at the Ammonites and who their primary God was, it was the God of Molech. And Jesus, not Jesus, God talks about this multiple times in the Old Testament. You can go to Leviticus 18, you can go to Leviticus 20, where the God of Molech is specifically described. And I'm going to read both of these because I think they're very powerful. Um, It says this in Leviticus 18, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You go two chapters later and you read this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. Essentially, you've got a nation whose worship included lighting their children on fire in a death offering to a pagan god. And God's going, that's a heinous evil. If you were to continue reading in Leviticus chapter 20, God says, if you do that, you should be stoned. And then he goes even further and he says, if you know of someone who did that and you don't say anything, you need to be killed as well. And so what came with foreign marriages was foreign worship. And what came with foreign worship was heinous evil. Worshiping foreign pagan gods primarily in this context through the means of child sacrifice, and God wanted nothing to do with that. Another question that would arise out of this section is, man, it seems a little bit aggressive that Nehemiah is cursing people out and pulling their hair, <laughs> right? And, and like you can imagine the fun jokes that like pastors have with that about church discipline, but I'm not going to go there. Um, but, I, but I'll say this, like, is Nehemiah right in his reaction to that? Is Nehemiah right in his response? Well, I'll say that um, one thing that I do really appreciate is he took sin pretty seriously. Like in, in a day and age where, um, quite frankly, like we're pretty timid in calling each other out in our sin. Like we're, we're pretty timid because we don't want to be seen as a hypocrite. Like, I don't know, you've got your stuff, but I've got my stuff too. And like no one really wants to call anyone out. Well, here's the reality. If you have a friend who's literally like swimming in a river that's headed towards a waterfall Like, it would be evil to not say, hey, buddy, like, get out of the water, right? But I think the Christian posture very often is like, yeah, he's going to fall over the waterfall, and it's going to hurt, but Jesus will heal him. And I think Nehemiah shows us a good example of, man, we need to take sin seriously. 
And yes, with tact and grace and love and honor, and we need to have those relationships that, that we've invited people into, but man, he takes it seriously. Is he right in his aggression, in his cussing, and in his pulling out of hair? I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Um, I think cultures do things differently in terms of punishment. Uh, I remember uh, about eight or about 10 years ago, my wife and I lived in Korea. And I remember the first time watching a punishment that was very different than how we did things in the States. And I loved it. I thought it was fabulous. I walked by this classroom and um, all the kids were on top of their desks, kneeling literally like this on their desks, but under their knees were pencils. And if a classroom behaved, like you had to kneel on pencils. And if you were really bad, you had to hold your chair above your head while your knees were on pencils on top of your desk. Now, if I tried to do that here in the States, like pretty sure I'd be the front page of the newspaper. But the fact of the matter is like, Culturally, it wasn't a big deal. It's just like, yeah, you get punished when you do something wrong. Like, it's going to hurt. So, I don't know. I don't know if Nehemiah was really wrong in his pulling out of hair. I don't know. I'm not going to comment on that. Um, <laughs> and then the book ends, again, with rebuild, rebuild, rebuild. And then this last phrase, and this is where we're going to end. We're going to go into a time of communion. He says this. He says, remember me, oh my God, for good. It's this final cry of, man, we've been rebuilding, we've been rebuilding, we've been rebuilding, and we're going to keep rebuilding, but God, remember me, I'm trying. I'm, I'm seriously trying. And that's the last piece of the Old Testament. 400 years of silence after that. Like, that's literally the last thing that's spoken of through this long 1,500-year story, the end. Like, what a great story. But the reality is, and you all know this punchline's coming, like that's, that's the halftime break, right? Like that's not the full story. Like because it, you, you don't get the entire gospel just in the Old Testament. You, you gotta have the whole thing, right? And this is where we get to the cross every single week because Jesus comes and he completes the story, right? So, so it's not, I gotta rebuild, I gotta rebuild, I gotta rebuild because without Jesus, you are in this perpetual cycle. But with Jesus, he goes, no, I arrived. I didn't just have to keep rebuilding. I, I, in fact, lived out the life perfectly that you're supposed to live, and I gave my life in punishment for you so that you can arrive. But that arrival for you and I, when does that arrival happen? At the day of completion, at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when arrival happens for us. And, and, and for the Christian, I think we can get through these seasons where we're just like, Man, I'm promised that I will feel like I've arrived here on earth. But the truth of the gospel is you will arrive when you die. Because from the moment I die, from, from the moment I'm born to the moment that I die, that's half. That's half of my life. The other half is when I'm with Christ face to face. And I'm, I've finally arrived. I finally got there. But I think oftentimes people get tired in their faith and they walk away when they feel like, I should arrive, but I never quite do on this side of things. What's wrong? Jesus' invitation is, I bring completion. There isn't a need to keep rebuilding, rebuilding, rebuilding. And yes, there's a part of that that's true in our lives because we're constantly moving towards righteousness and holiness. But the promise is there will be a day and a time when the story will literally be and they lived happily ever after. 
because we lived face-to-face with God in heaven. But, man, that time won't come until then. So in the meantime, what do we do? In the meantime, I think one of the best things that we can possibly do is be a people of great hope and a people who do celebrate and a people who do constantly reform. And we're going to do that today. We're going to do that through a time of communion. And communion, all it is, we're going to be passing that out in just a minute during this next song, is literally you're going to get a little cracker, you're going to get a piece, or you're going to get a little cup of juice, and it's just this moment where Jesus says, do this, remember me. So we take the cracker and we remember the body and blood of Christ's sacrifice between those two. And it's an act, it's a symbol, there's nothing crazy that happens, it's just something that we do to remind ourselves completion, arrival, will happen when I'm face-to-face with Jesus someday because of his life and death for me. And so we're going to pass that, take that, take that on your own during the next three songs. There's going to be some time where we can really reflect on that and thank God for the truth that my life isn't just rebuild, 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 but I'm rebuilding in a hope of a time where I get to see Jesus face-to-face and all is complete. Would you pray with me? Father God, um, I, I know that I live in a world that promise me, promises me arrival. But my experience is I don't quite ever get there. And that can be pretty frustrating if I don't have a truth that says real arrival happens when I see you face to face. And that will be in heaven and I long for that day. God, in the meantime, your invitation is to draw near to you and to keep rebuilding But not rebuilding in this like, I can do it all effort. Rebuilding in a sense that you've already accomplished it and my job is to draw close to you. And Lord, like that's that's the invitation. It's it's draw close to me because you've rebuilt. Your kingdom's complete. And the invitation is come now, come join my kingdom. Don't try to build your own, but come join me. Jesus, we love you and we need you. We thank you for the remembrance of this as we will get to take this in communion. Pray these things in your name. Amen.